Welcome to Scavenger's Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney+, Plus, or a weird Legends novelisation you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 185, and it's 2nd of October, 2022. So before we get into the episode proper, um, I'd just like to do a little bit of an apology tour because it's been something of a delay since we last recorded. Um, I think we had initially hoped to be back in September, but essentially both our lives have been crazy. Um, We won't go into details, you know, because life is life and we keep it a bit separate from the podcast stuff. Um, But a lot has been happening. Nothing bad as such, so don't worry about us. Um, But yeah, we've just had a lot on, essentially, which meant we haven't been able to podcast until now. But we're very excited to podcast now because we're both really, really enjoying Andor. And that's what we're going to talk about this time. I did feel really bad last week because I (laughs) desperately wanted to record and talk about it with you. (laughs) And it was just so exciting going on Twitter and seeing all the reactions to those first three episodes. But something came up last last weekend and because of the time difference, it's just hard for us to do anything midweek at this point. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for everyone's patience. I'm sure you're all dying to hear our thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we hope the wait is worth it. No pressure on us at all. Um, And I did also just want to do a little thing um, and say that on the 10th of October 2022, so a little bit over a week from now, that will be the 6th anniversary of this podcast because we posted our first episode ever on 10th of October 2016 which feels like ancient history now (laughs) but I just wanted to say that because I feel like I always forget like anniversaries and stuff for the podcast and I do think it's really cool that we've been going so long you know we're very much like an outlier in that respect you know I think a lot of podcasts are abandoned after just a few episodes so the fact that we've done it for six years is an achievement that I, I'm proud of and I hope you're proud of too, Kirsty. I am. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, we've taken breaks here and there and it's kind of shifted in a few ways, but I suppose that's inevitable, right? Yeah, exactly. As it goes along. Yeah. yeah. I think it's natural and healthy that the podcast changes a bit and evolves. And yeah, we obviously don't do it quite as frequently as we used to, but I think that's fine, you know, and the fact that we're still finding stuff in Star Wars to feel passionate about and discuss and share our thoughts on I really love that we are still in that place right so yeah it's really good yeah you know even the Star Wars that we're kind of mixed and a bit iffy on like it's interesting to still talk about it with each other and hopefully people who still listen get something out of that but it's also really nice when a show comes out that we respond to really positively like this one so yeah yeah exactly because honestly, I feel happy even if there's just one show like that each year. So I think last year, I feel like Visions was the show that was like the highlight of my year in terms mm. of Star Wars stuff. I loved that so much. I actually would like to revisit it soon. Um, and yeah, as you'll find out, we're both very, very positive on Andor as well. We're really impressed so far. So yeah, it's a really nice feeling to be so pumped about it, Star Wars things. Yeah. yeah and it's it's nice to just kind of remind yourself like not all of it is going to be a hundred percent for me you yeah know? so there's lots of star wars fans out there they have lots of different tastes exactly and the thing is i think it's natural and good to have peaks and troughs right because if everything was exactly the same quality even if everything was great i think you'd be less liable to recognize when things were really really good you know, so I think the inconsistency in itself is a bit of a feature, not a bug. 
I know we've talked about this before, but I have been a little bit worried since The Last Jedi because nothing in my mind was really living up to that. But I and I, I know it's early days of Andor, so I could sure. be jumping the gun. But these first few episodes were really strong, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a nice feeling. No, for sure. It's really promising. So, yeah, there has obviously been other Star Wars stuff going on recently. You know, they released the Obi-Wan Kenobi documentary, for example, um, which we both watched and I think we both enjoyed it. Um, But, yeah, we're not going to talk about that in depth here. It's kind of like old news at this point and we're really in the thick of Andor. And I think you also read The Princess and the Scoundrel, right, Kirsty? I know that was a while ago, though, so I don't expect you to have clear memories. Yeah, I listened to the audiobook. Okay. um, I'd obviously heard your thoughts about it beforehand and they have the whole like Star Cruiser product placement <laughs> extended advert thing going on which yes. I think the writer did her best to kind of accommodate in a, in a natural way you know and I, I sure. appreciated that it was like clear that it wasn't Han and Leia's first choice for a honeymoon it wasn't <laughs> something that was really to their tastes yeah it was so kind of edgy I guess in that respect <laughs> but yeah like it, it's I would say it's worth a listen if you want to know more about Han and Leia's relationship at that point in their story, you know, just after Return of the Jedi and kind of um, Leia coming to terms with what Luke tells her about Vader and all that kind of thing. I think the actual plot of the story that was being unfolded on the cruiser wasn't really my cup of tea. I wasn't so so invested in that. But in terms of like the focus on their relationship, if you love Han and Leia together, I'd say it's worth it for that. Yeah. Exactly. And I can recommend the hardcover because it's very beautiful. Yes. And it has a gorgeous romantic illustration of the two of them, which, yeah, mwah. I do love that because, yeah, a lot of Star Wars can be quite romance-shy, um, but not that book. It was very much high on the romance, which, yeah, was welcome. Yeah, it just gives me hope for that Raylo novelization in, like, mm. 20 years' time. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> gotta keep that candle burning there's gonna be enough new york times best-selling Raylo authors at that point for one of them to make a pitch to lucasfilm that's <laughs> successful that's what i tell myself anyway i can dream um, but yeah let's move on and talk about andor so at the time of recording we've only seen the first four episodes um and Essentially, what Tony Gilroy, the showrunner, has explained is that there's 12 episodes total in this first season, and those 12 episodes are split into four arcs, each with three episodes. We're doing it in a slightly wonky way this time, because we're going to talk about the first arc, and then a little bit about the opening of the second arc, just because there's some stuff that's so juicy in it, I want to say it now, I don't want to hold it back until we record again. Um, but yeah, that's just to give people context for when we're recording this and what we're going to cover in this episode. Mm. Yeah, so Kirsty, could you talk a bit about what your expectations were going into Andor? So obviously, I guess the baseline for this is Rogue One, right? Because it's following a character from that film. Yeah, to be honest, I didn't really know what to think. Because like, there are elements that I enjoy in Rogue One. It's definitely not one of my favourite Star Wars movies. Um but I've always loved Diego Luna as an actor, mm-hmm. you know, ever since being obsessed as a teenager with Eating Mama Tambien. But like, it's, I don't know, I didn't know what to think, especially after the last few series that, the, you know, there's been nothing there that I've like really, really loved, um, or at least like found myself quite mixed on them by the end of the series. Um, 
And when they announced Andor as part of that huge Investors Day, there was so much announced that day that it was impossible to kind of glom onto one thing. And Andor kind of got lost in the shuffle for me a little bit because there were just so many series that were focused on all of these different characters. And, you know, with Rogue One as this huge ensemble and very plot driven, Cassian was never really a character that I got super attached to. Like, yeah. I, I think Diego Luna's performance is good. Like, there's definitely elements of intrigue there. I just never really thought too much beyond the film itself. Um, but I think they've clearly managed to create a story there that is worth telling, right? Um, I think it's just great to have Star Wars that's not so self-consciously Star Wars. Yeah. Like, it, clearly Tony Gilroy developed a story that was going to work with this character but could really also have been told in a non-star wars context like it it just has this feel of a kind of espionage spy thriller genre and they're just oh yeah we'll we'll, we'll do this with star wars and that is really interesting to me so yeah. it I had seen these interviews before where I, I wasn't paying a super close attention to the press tour, but he was coming out with things like, oh, there won't be any Easter eggs. We're not doing fan service. It's not that kind of show. All of that stuff did sound quite promising to me, but I was like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and to be fair, I do response, think there are yeah. Easter eggs. We'll get to it later, but like there are, there are references in there to obviously other things that happen within the wider Star Wars story, but they're kind of how Easter eggs should be in that if you miss them, it doesn't really matter as opposed to them being the point of the show and very nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's more subtle. They're doing it in a quite a natural way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I think I came in to this show from a similar position to you in that I liked Rogue One, but I didn't feel like hugely attached to any of the characters. Um, and I think the reason for that is I find the characters in Rogue One are pretty thinly drawn, you know, which makes sense as a movie, you know, they've only got limited time. But I think because it is quite a big team that they assemble, there's only so much time they can give to fleshing out each of these characters. So they always felt a bit like pencil sketches of characters, you know, without a lot of definition, even though they had these really great actors playing the parts. Um, and yeah, I think the most surprising thing about Andor and what it's done really well for me is how it's taken a character I wasn't particularly interested in and it's really made him this three-dimensional person where, yeah, like I understand now where he came from and, you know, I understand his the starting point of his journey into the Rebellion. So obviously we've only literally just got that right so far we've only got the very beginnings of how he gets involved with that group but that in itself is such an interesting foundation to the character especially since we also get those glimpses into his childhood and what that was like so yeah he just feels like so much more of a f real person to me now and that's just so welcome because I love Star Wars, but I think Star Wars is often about archetypes, right? And larger-than-life figures. Like, I love the saga films, you know, and obviously a big passion of both of ours is the sequel trilogy characters, and we love those characters. But those are kind of like mythological figures, almost, you know, like legendary figures, and they're really well-performed, and I think there are, like, tangible elements to those characters where you can 
see like realistic facets to their personality but they're also like a lost princess and a prince and stuff you know there's all these like fairy tale and mythological themes going on whereas these people they feel like characters from a soap opera you know i think you invoked coronation street right kirsty when you were talking about the first few episodes it's because i recognize some of the actors <laughs> yeah yeah no but there are some of those vibes though you know in yeah. terms of like sketching out just the fabric of these people's lives and all the interconnections of their relationships and stuff so it just feels way more grounded, I think, than we're used to seeing in Star Wars. And I think that's a good thing, you know, because it is a different side to the galaxy. And I'm really enjoying seeing that. Yeah, I've seen some of these like kind of disagreements going on where people will say, oh, it's gritty. And I, I kind of get what they mean. It's like people are saying that the world feels lived in and it has this like tangibility like as you say groundedness to it where even the most minor of characters feels real and that you can like sense through the quality of the writing and the acting that there's like an inner life there there's real motive behind what everyone is doing no matter how much in the background they are or how few lines they have within a scene um and it just like draws you in and it doesn't mean like that the overall ethos of the show will be cynical like gritty in that like grimdark way i don't believe that they'll go there with star wars at all that's just not kind of yeah it's not the kind of story that you would tell with someone like Cassian before Rogue One right but in terms of everything feeling like it's drawing you in with this like real feeling to it I can't explain it but um yeah I think it's just everyone's so invested all of a sudden and I can't speak for everyone but that's a, a surprise for us because it just feels so different from the other shows that they've done yeah, And I think it's a nice reminder that, you know, when they announce these shows and we're like, oh, a Kenobi series, they finally announced it or, or whatever it is that's like, it's something that you recognize and are pre-invested in because you were invested in this other thing this character was in. The thing that's brand new or it's about a character that you aren't so invested in. It's like, it doesn't matter if the people behind it have a story that they want to tell and they're going to do it well, it will draw you in. You yeah. don't have to be pre-invested. Exactly. It's like I think back to the Kenobi show and so much of the highlights for me in those early episodes were when the script was invoking other parts of Star Wars. You know, like when Kenobi is talking about Padme or at least alluding to Padme, you know, when talking to Leia. And I do think those parts of that show are effective. But I think it says a lot that the meaning of that sort of dialogue, it depends on your prior knowledge of Star Wars right whereas what's going on in Andor it's not doing that you know it's throwing you into the action and media res and just expecting you to keep up with it and respecting you as a viewer enough for you to be able to cope with that you know and for you to be able to follow what's going on to the extent that you need to to get absorbed in the narrative and like get what's really important about the story so yeah it's really impressive um I actually have a quote from Tony Gilroy about what he was aiming to do with the story of Andor. It's from Variety. Could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? Mm -hmm. I wanted to do it about real people. They've made all this IP about the royal family, in essence. It's been great, but there's a billion, billion, billion other beings in the galaxy. There's plumbers and cosmeticians, journalists. What are their lives like? The revolution is affecting them just as much as anybody else. Why not use the Star Wars canon as a host organism for absolutely realistic, passionate, dramatic storytelling. As for any other legacy characters who may pop up in season one, 
they are, Gilroy says, never fan service. Oh, music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> but I, as I said, I was like excited to read these things before the show, but also a bit sceptical. Sure. Just because of what's come before. And again, I'm not like dissing that stuff that does exist because I, I get that people have been really enjoying it. And like in the moment, it's exciting to hear a character's name if it's someone that you care about, right? But you can't hinge a whole show on that. No. And if you can feed it in organically in a way that makes the world feel expansive, like them talking about Scarif or, oh, we're back on Coruscant, but we're seeing it from a different perspective and with these different characters or it's, you know, a different element and it's saying something new. I think that's what matters. Yeah, exactly. And I think another thing I've really appreciated about this show is it gives so much more dimension to the political landscape that's going on in Star Wars. You know, and obviously in the prequels, there's a lot of political stuff. But again, in the prequels, I enjoy a lot of them. But there's not always great clarity about interconnections between systems and how like the governance of things work. Whereas in Andor, I think even though they're really throwing you into it and they're not really pausing to give you big exposition dumps for the most part... I think we've already got a really interesting depiction of like how the private sector and the empire overlap because obviously a big presence in the first arc is the Primor Authority which is like a private company essentially that runs, I'm not sure if it's a few planets or one planet or whatever, Mm. it runs a part of the galaxy and it's like a private company but you know obviously they're colluding with the empire you know the empire knows what they're doing and it allows them to function essentially um and again i just found that so interesting so it invoked all these parallels to real history you know like yeah obviously there's the british empire and in the history of the british empire there's also the british east india company mm-hmm. and the british east india company operated almost like its own government essentially for if not decades maybe even a century or more Uh, And, you know, it essentially ruled India for a period of time until the British Empire, like, took over. You know, and you kind of see that in, like, a Star Wars way in this show. Um, And, again, that's just fascinating to me. You know, it's not something that's ever been touched on in, like, Star Wars media, at least not the live-action media before, in terms of, like, how does the Empire actually keep control of all these different parts of the galaxy yeah and that to me makes much more sense when there's these like outlying functions and collaborators who make it happen on the ground essentially you know and then the empire is supervising them so i find that side of things fascinating it is really interesting to get away from kind of the fairy tale like horror aspect of the empire of just like palpatine pulling the strings right and thinking about how regular people would be going about this and how like the actual real mechanics of as you say like a a private company then being taken over it's like well you're not doing exactly what we asked so we're just going to come in and and be more open about taking over now yep exactly yeah i just didn't expect to see that but there's humor there as well you know with these bumbling (laughs) buffoons oh, yeah. like, oh, what's the name of that guy cyril is it uh yes cyril that actor is incredible like the yeah. range of emotions going on on his face without him having to, needing to say anything like you can see this cycle of oh i've gotten way over my head yeah. i'm not able to even command the attention of the people i'm supposedly in charge of 
gets there and it's just completely not what he expected and it doesn't go the way that he thinks it will at all yeah, yeah terrific he's role. so good he, he's honestly one of my favorites just the performances in general i'm really impressed by everyone oh god yeah yeah, yeah. no they're really really impressive um I think Stellan Skarsgård is a real highlight for me. And again, I'm going to try and stop myself from talking about him <laughs> too long. Um, but yeah, he's just so brilliant. Um, and actually, on that note, I have another comment that Tony Gilroy gave to the Hollywood Reporter this time about essentially how he, he had to coach the actors to kind of like suspend all the Star Wars stuff in their mm. minds when they were performing. Um, so yeah, I found this quote really interesting. Could you read it out, please? Yeah. We have this experience all the time. In every department, we've had all kinds of people come in and they know it's Star Wars, so they change their behavior. (laughs) They change their attitude. They change their thing. An actor will come in off a Ken Loach movie or something. They'll put on a Star Wars costume and all of a sudden this great actor who auditioned for you and didn't know what it really was starts acting differently and you go, wait, no, do your thing. You're here because we want you to be real. So it's a testament to the potent power of Star Wars. It really gets into people's heads. But to change the lane and do it this way, it takes a little effort. Yeah, and I really do think, you know, whatever Tony Gilroy did with these people, it worked. It paid off, yeah. Yeah. He's obviously talking to the actors about what he wants from them and it delivers. And, you know, I can completely sympathize with that idea of like, you know, you have these amazing actors... And just saying, like, no, we hired you because we want you to do the serious kind of drama that you're known for. Yeah. <laughs> so just do that, please. And we just happen to be in Star Wars, but don't don't think about that too much. And I really think that comes across. Like, it's not, as I said, it's like not too self consciously Star Wars. Yeah. And they've just managed to. And I, I don't know if how much of this is down to Tony Gilroy himself, like how strong of a personality he was, with really kind of asserting that yes, this is a Star Wars project technically. But I don't particularly care about Star Wars as its own big thing. I just want to tell my story within your world. Like that so far really seems to be what they're doing. Exactly. Um, And I think like a really good point to illustrate that is I think about Sophie Thatcher, who was one of the... um, God, I can't even remember how to describe them. The mods. She was was one of the mods, thank you, in the book of Boba Fett. And... She's just so flat in that show. And that sounds really mean, but I'm about to compliment her. So um, (laughs) I promise I'm not being too bad. But then I saw that same actress in Yellow Jackets literally within a few weeks of having seen her in the Book of Boba Fett. And she was so fantastic in Yellow Jackets, you know, and gave this like really rich, detailed, psychologically informed performance, you know, that made her feel, her character feel so real and vivid. And just the contrast between that and what she was doing in this other show was so striking. And I do think a lot of that is in the writing. You know, there was almost nothing to work with when it came to that character, right? But I think it is also in, you know, what's the nature of this project and what's the ethos behind it. And I I think there's fun parts to the Book of Boba Fett, but it's very much like, Star Wars is so good! We're having fun in the Star Wars playground! Yay! And, and there's nothing wrong with that if you know that's what the creators wanted to do yeah exactly it's just a different kind of project and that's okay but i do think it has a detrimental effect on the performances because it kind of encourages the actors to sort of like pantomime it's a bit know, hokey and, isn't it yeah exactly just be hokey and yeah whereas this it yeah it just feels like rooted in real things you know that people in the real world go through and yeah i appreciate it a lot yeah, I think sometimes like it's 
this is just what fan discourse is like people get defensive of the things that they like and they think you're saying that you can't like those things because this thing exists and we think it's better sure like i'm not going to go way too far in and be like oh this is prestige television you know (laughs) it's just it's gripping and it's like i'm watching something on itv or like you know some some thriller that's like oh i didn't expect to get into this but the story's really drawing me in um and yeah the other shows have their place too and they obviously have their audience so it's fine like there's nothing wrong with that but i just really appreciate that tony gilroy seems to have achieved what he wanted to um and again i know it's early days and i have had experience with you know other disney plus shows and the like that it kind of starts to fall apart so i don't want to like get get too ahead of myself (laughs) sure yeah yeah let's not yet complain it the best thing that star wars has ever done right (laughs) yeah we don't want to get too forward essentially of our opinions but i'm just so invested in seeing where they go with the rest of the story like and you know even characters who are completely new like bix i'm like can you go back to her at some point i want to see what she's up to yeah exactly there's so many tantalizing threads um and yeah, but the way we're going to structure it, there's one more thing I want to say in general, but just to prepare people, we're going to essentially talk about the different aspects of the story. So we're not going to divide it by episodes because it would kind of be an artificial distinction. We're going to talk about the different storylines that are going on um, to the best of our ability. They do overlap, you know, so it won't be perfect, but we'll do our best to organize it in a sensible fashion so yeah we'll see how we get on but one last general thing the music is smashing it's so oh, good it's so good oh i love it there's a drum solo at the end of episode two that yeah it's just so gnarly it's like, oh <laughs> i love it and just like completely not indebted to john williams's Star Wars yeah music. it's its own thing yeah and i love john williams's styles music it's wonderful but i do also think it's kind of a trap you know and like um Natalie Holt did the music for Obi-Wan Kenobi and she's such a talented composer and I think she did great work on Loki but the Kenobi score it it just felt kind of bland and I think looking back it's probably because it was too indebted you know to what John Williams was doing and it was trying to evoke that same kind of feeling and it was just never going to quite manage it to the same degree. Yeah I wonder for certain projects if they're kind of told like you have to play within these lines yeah and you know we very much want this to have that prequels so yeah yeah John Williams and I'm sure feel. she was told that so I'm pretty sure John wrote a theme for Kenobi yeah. um and yeah I guess they wanted all to cohere and stuff so yeah it makes me feel kind of sorry for Natalie though so I think how can you possibly live up to that right I know so, yeah, yeah it does feel almost unfair I'm sure they're thrilled to have contributed anyway but yeah. this, it really does feel like he's putting his own stamp on it. And, um, oh, God, the music at the end of episode three, where they have that big montage. Very emotional. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's really beautiful. Just the whole sequence was incredible. Okay, so to the best of our ability, we're about to talk about story arcs. Um, so, again, I'm sure you're not listening to this unless you have seen Andor. I really hope you've seen Andor. But this is where we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the plot and what happens to certain characters. So... Yeah, consider this your final spoiler warning, which you hopefully wouldn't need anyway. But yeah, if you did need it, there it is. <laughs> so yeah, um, I hope you enjoyed coming on this discussion with us. Um, so yeah, the first thing I was going to talk about was young Cassian, also called Cassa, which seems to be his original name, on Canari. Um, so yeah, were you expecting these flashbacks, Kirsty? Were you a bit surprised to see them go back to his childhood? 
Or had you been paying attention to the trailers? <laughs> I had not expected to see that. <laughs> I must have watched the trailers at some point, but I honestly didn't remember. Sure. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I um, think there are shots from his childhood in the trailers, but I think they're very fleeting. Also, you know, maybe it's not context, clear what it is. You wouldn't realise what they were. So, right. Yeah. Did, did you know then? Um, That's a good question. <laughs> I think maybe I did from interviews, but not from the trailer. Right. So, yeah, oh. I don't think you would have necessarily pieced it together just from yeah. the trailers. I suppose my fault for not paying attention, but it was a nice surprise. Yeah. I thought that actor was wonderful. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, they did so much with those scenes and they're not speaking basic or English, but you feel the sense of community. And I was really intrigued by the fact that I couldn't see any adults. I was like, what happened here? Yeah. And again, I think that's a really great sign of the storytelling in the show. You know, the fact that there's never like a dialogue exchange where you hear the children being like, oh, I wish the adults would come back. <laughs> um, in fact, you don't actually know anything what they're saying, really, because none of it's subtitled. You yeah. know, they deliberately choose not to translate it. Yeah. And again, I think that shows so much trust in and respect for the viewer that I really appreciate it because... You know, you don't technically need to know what they're saying because you can infer it. Exactly. You know, from the body language and the expressions and stuff, you know what you need to know. And it's just this great economy of storytelling, which I, I just think is great. And it's a sign of really good script writing. Yeah, you can see visually the contrast between how Cassian spent his younger years versus where he ends up, right? And I feel yeah. like that's... And obviously there's the language difference too. And then over the course of that arc, it comes together with the meeting. As I was talking about at the end of that montage of episode three, everything kind of comes together. And yeah. then he's kind of on to the next stage. Um, so it all works together very well. Exactly. Did you know that these flashback sequences triggered a huge debate regarding Cassian's age? No, I didn't. But I'm reading your notes here and I'm like, oh, of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> blissfully <Yeah>. unaware <laughs> so I'm really sorry to do this to people especially Kirsty because this is just going to be tedious as hell this is the kind of thing that Tony Gilroy would be like who cares <laughs> yeah exactly um, I care <laughs> I was a bit like oh so he says he's been in the fight since he was six years old he's obviously older than that here yes is that like what happened to the adults is that is that kind of what he's referencing there yeah, exactly. I, and I do think the age debate is interesting because of all these kinds of things, um, because I think it just throws open the interpretation of a lot of the timeline in an interesting way. I mean, can't it also be that time passes differently from planet to planet? I mean... Perhaps. I feel like that would be a bit too convoluted, though. The debate, in air quotes, because obviously it's only a debate between the tiny minority of people, <laughs> most people don't care, is that in the visual dictionary for Rogue One... Cassian was said to be 26 and that would mean he is 21 in Andor because Andor right. is set five years before Rogue One starts in real life Diego Luna is 42 he looks amazing a gorgeous 42 a gorgeous 42 but 42 and I think it's reasonable to say that he does not look like a 21 year old he's had a difficult life yeah exactly he has had a difficult life they drink a lot on Ferrex yes exactly <laughs> And then, to complicate things even more, so there's the databank, the famous, or potentially infamous, as you might call it, Star Wars databank, that um, we have referred to in the past, especially in the early days, because it had some interesting information on Ray and Kylo that we read a lot into, which we probably shouldn't have bothered doing, but whatever. 
But on the databank, it says that the flashbacks to Kanari, so when Cassian was a child, there's two pieces of information. First of all, that Cassa, so I need to remember that he was called Cassa at this point, was nine at the point these flashbacks occur, and that the flashbacks occur prior to the start of the Clone Wars. Okay, so bear with me. I promise we'll rest I'm already there. a bit lost, sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to keep up. I'm, I'm so just... sorry. Okay, so the Clone Wars started in 22 BBY, which means 22 years before the Battle of Yavin, which is the original Star Wars. And so that would mean that, say this happened, like literally just before the Clone Wars started, Cassian would have to be 31 as of the time of Rogue One. Okay. So that would make him five years older than what we previously believed. Yeah, I mean, why not, though? He was clearly, like, taken from the society that he grew up in and then adopted, and he, there's no way he has a birth certificate. Like, no. so maybe he thinks he's one age, but is actually another, or... Yeah. I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't really, other than the fact that I think that the show is making a point of the fact that his background has been deliberately hidden, because there's discussions with um, Marva, who's his mm. adoptive mother, yeah. about claiming a particular place to be his birthplace when it obviously was not his real birthplace. So I think it's going to be part of the fabric of the show, essentially, that facts yeah. about his life and his background have been fudged. And I think that gives them a nice way out, to be honest, for all these inconsistencies. Yeah, Diego was saying in interviews that his character is like a refugee. Yeah. So I think it is going to have kind of some... Yeah, real world parallels are. Exactly. And I think I'm curious if, you know, the flashbacks take place prior to the Clone Wars, who's responsible for, like, basically decimating that planet? Mm. Because, you know, you see that there's been some really, like, damaging mining being done on that planet, you know, clearly, like, really destroying the landscape and presumably, like, taking away the habitat that these people were living in, you know? maybe that had something to do with why the adults are all gone. You know, obviously I'm just making assumptions right now, but it's possible. Um, and it's like, was were the people doing that the Republic themselves? Mm. You know, like, because if so, would that cause conflict in terms of how Cassian feels about supporting the rebellion? Because obviously the Rebel Alliance, the whole point is to restore the Republic. You know, and how would Cassian feel about restoring the Republic if the Republic is essentially what destroyed and pilfered his homeworld? Well, was his planet referred to as a separatist planet at one point. Was that around Rogue One time when the movie came out? Yeah, I feel like the discourse at the time was that Cassian's background was that he was a separatist as a child. Um, and again, nothing explicit has come out about that yet in this show, you know, so who knows how much they're adhering to that. So I think, again, that's something that was only ever in the expanded stuff, you know, like the visual dictionary. So, you know, if it wasn't, didn't fit the story Tony Gilroy wanted to tell, he wouldn't necessarily have to stick to that, right? Yeah. Because there's also this, like, they're not going to really go into it, but there is this tension of it wasn't originally Gilroy's story, it was Gareth Edwards, right? Yeah. Whatever writers he was working with way back when. Yes. So it is a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. (laughs) Exactly. It, it's worked out to an extent, but yeah, a lot of that stuff won't be his original intent. Yeah, and I'd imagine, to be honest, a lot of the details about Cassian's background from the time of Rogue One, they probably didn't even come from Gareth Edwards, they were probably from Pablo Hidalgo well, yeah. <laughs> or, or other people at the story group, you know, so I can't imagine the filmmakers having enough time or inclination even to flesh all this stuff out. Mm. Um yeah, so it's going to be interesting, essentially, to see 
how all the different elements going on in Cassian's background come into play because we're also not clear on what his, the allegiance of his adoptive parents is, right? You know, because they're obviously the ones who take him from Canari, but, you know, were they separatists perhaps? Or are they just like out for themselves? You know, you kind of get the impression they're just like adventurers, like and smugglers looking for stuff to steal, kind of, yeah, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I like that a lot of it is unexplained at this point and you're Same. just kind of thrown into it and maybe things will be elaborated later on, maybe not, but... Either way, with Marva as a character, I was just I, Fiona Shaw is wonderful, and I was excited to see her in whatever role it would turn out that she had. But like, I was surprised by how invested I was in their relationship so quickly. Yeah, they do a really good job at it, and I also liked that we saw her, you know, firstly as an older woman, you know, like quite vulnerable and frail, even, you know, like to the point where Cassian's told, oh, you've got to make sure your mum keeps the house warm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you see her as this like younger adventurer, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm so glad Fiona Shaw gets to play that, you know, because you're seeing this character at two really different points in her life. And yeah, it lends her more dimension than I think mother characters tend to get, especially in Star Wars. You know, because she's not just this, like, vulnerable person to be protected. She's also the person who once saved him, you know, and saw value in his life and wanted to mm. preserve it. Um, so, yeah. It's Baru's again, legacy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, justice for Baru. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Easter egg. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so really, really great stuff of Cass's background. Um, I presume that the young girl we see him interacting with early on, it's like a younger child, essentially. That's his sister. Mm. Um, because then at the very start of the first episode that's the person that he's looking for essentially um, when he goes to Molona 1 and shockingly goes to a brothel how did you feel about that sort of establishment being depicted in live action Star Wars Kirsty? well I mean it's hardly it's not <laughs> they're very tame with it aren't they <laughs> they were yeah. it's still very kid friendly you, you could show it to like a 10 year old and they'd have yeah. no idea what was going yeah, on yeah exactly so. it's just it looks, looks it just looks like a bar yeah exactly it could just be a really fun bar <laughs> maybe his sister was a waitress or something exactly that's what I choose to believe I was it's an interesting thing when Marva and Clem are like oh well we have to take him because you know if we leave him here the Republic will come and kill them all yeah but is that something that they've talked to young Cassian about once they adopted him because he's still out there looking for his sister I guess he just hasn't given up on her Oh, did they actually say the Republic will come and kill them all? Uh, I can't remember if they said... Yeah, they said someone would be here and would retaliate. Right, yes. That's why I, they take him. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it is the Republic, if that would feed into the theory I suggested. Oh, about... I can't remember if she said the Republic specifically. Oh, okay. But like, okay, whoever, whoever sent that ship, you sure. know. Sure, yeah, yeah. Which I think is intentionally a bit ambiguous at the Oh, moment. okay, all right. I presume they're going to come back to them. Yeah, and I, I do really hope that we revisit that time frame, actually, um, in terms of, you know, after he's taken from Canari, because obviously, you know, he must be completely bewildered at that point, so he doesn't have a common language with them. Mm. And, you know, he's been taken from his people and everything he knows. And, yeah, I'd imagine, sure, he I'm sure he wants to live, you know, so if that was explained to him, I imagine he'd understand that eventually. But I think regardless of any seeing the logic behind the decision, I think he'd still be very distressed and kind of resentful. So 
yeah, I feel like that adds interest and layers to his relationship with his adoptive parents, essentially. So they seem to have a very loving relationship, you know, when you see Cassian interacting with Marva, like, in the present, you know, when she's yeah. older. But I'd imagine it must have been a fractious relationship in the past, at some point, at least. Yeah, it's in, like, part of that uh, montage at the end when he wakes up on the ship and she looks back at him. I was kind of surprised at that point for him to not be like visibly scared. He was just kind of curious. Yeah. I was like, oh, you're being taken away from everything that you know. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe he was still like half asleep or something. Yeah. I kind of like loved that moment, you know, just because of like what it represented in the moment. You know, Yeah, like, you can see her and affection stuff. and care for him. Yeah. yeah. So, so I did like that. But I agree with you in terms of practically speaking, I would expect more like, what the hell have you done to me? Where I guess we? that comes later. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a shock reaction. So, yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, about the whole Canari stuff and Cass's childhood before we move on? I don't think so. Like, so much of it is, like, kind of concealed, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, have, I, I haven't had a chance to read them through, but I have seen that some people have been attempting to translate it because, you know, they read that the language was kind of derived from Spanish but oh, like it is its own made up language for the show but maybe there's a way to like um translate some things i don't know but that's very ambitious that people are doing that respect <laughs> serious yeah. respect yeah so i guess the bulk of the first three episodes that the main story being told is essentially of a disaffected adult cassian he's trying to find his missing sister on molana one ends up killing two security guys essentially and then is then like holy crap I need to get out of here and trying yeah. to scramble to sort out his life and leave Ferrix which is apparently where he's been living recently and is also where his mum lives yeah so that's like the main thrust of Cassian's story across the first three episodes so yeah I loved the Blade Runner aesthetic on Molana mm. 1 I know it's not the most original sci-fi aesthetic but I feel like they aced it and it immediately established to me that this was like a different kind of Star Wars from what we've seen before. So yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, I thought that was well done. It's obviously like a visual language that is recognisable for the kind of story that they're telling here with this kind of protagonist. Exactly. And just like, even though it's meant to be like the leisure centre of this like planet, it was also just so like dank and miserable and depressing. You know, where you could tell this isn't actually a fun place for the people who live there. <laughs> you yes. know, it's a bit crappy. And yeah, I also really found it interesting that the way they start Cassian's story in this show is kind of like how they start Cassian's story in the film, Rogue One. Because mm -hmm. yeah. in both, you start with him killing someone and here even killing two people. Yeah. Initially by accident, though. Yes, it's true. First by accident, but then deliberately. Yes, deliberately, but you can tell that he's panicking and in way over his head. But yeah. that's kind of the start of the story for him. Things get out of control and he has to escape. Whereas for Rogue One, I guess he doesn't... Yeah, it's similar in that he goes into that situation and then it's almost like a a mercy killing. Like yeah. that guy is so clearly not equipped to deal with the ramifications of what he's doing by sharing that information with him. And that he, he won't be able to escape that situation. But yeah, I get that people will feel differently about that. But I, Cassian's obviously a very grey character. Yeah. And I think they do a really good job at contrasting the motive 
between those killings, essentially. Because here, like you say, he's out of panic, you know, he obviously wasn't, like, going out for the day intending to kill anyone. You know, he's really, like, driven, you know, to, like, have a fight, essentially, with them. Because they're taunting him. And, you know, a lot of what they're saying is really, like, alluding to, like, real life, like, racism, essentially. Mm. You know, in terms of, like, oh, did he swim across and stuff, you know, which... I think shows a lot about how politically aware this show is, you know, which I really appreciated it because it made it feel more visceral, you know, and like it actually has something to say, which I appreciate. It's a lot of Star Wars shies away from that. Yeah, so it gives him a motive in that respect. But I think ultimately, you know, the decision to kill the guys, uh, well, at first it isn't even a decision, right? It's kind of like accidental. He fights them and he punches too hard, essentially. And then the other guy, it's kind of like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, what do I do now? You know, and he knows if he doesn't get, kill this guy, essentially, he's going to go and grass on him and mm-hmm. he'll probably be killed, you know, as retribution. Yeah. So he does it under intense pressure, under those awful circumstances. Whereas in Rogue One, he kills the guy essentially not because of himself, because here it's self-preservation, right? But in Rogue One, it's about trying to preserve the integrity of the rebellion and making sure the Empire don't get hold of the knowledge in this guy's head. So it's a horrible decision to have to make. But at the same time, the reason to do it, it's not about Cassian himself. It's about the cause that Cassian is serving. So I think the contrast between the situations is a really neat way of showing how much that character has changed. Yeah, and what kind of journey he must have been on to get from that place to that one you exactly know? yeah we, so we still barely understand that journey because we're still really early on in the show right but again it shows the fact that he has so much growing and developing to do which yeah makes me excited about what's ahead mm-hmm. like again those guards the people that cassian kills they're assholes you know they're not <laughs> nice people but at the same time the show doesn't shy away from showing like how vulnerable and human they are you know they're like assholes in the way that like regular people we encounter in our lives are assholes you know and like when one of the guys is pleading for his life you know it's hard to watch that and not feel a bit of a sting when he's shot you know and I think that's intentional you know it's not saying oh these are great guys you should feel really sorry for them isn't Cassian a monster for doing this well no because you know, you're, you're not meant to feel that way they're obviously like racist and crazy. well later on like the other guy is talking about oh he's the most unpleasant person <laughs> He makes it sound like Cassian's done them a favour basically <laughs> rid of them. But again, in the moment, you know, it's framed in a way that really stresses the like moral complexity of that choice, essentially. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make it a clean kill for Cassian, you know, it's not like he killed himself in self defence in that moment. Yeah. You know. And I liked that. So again, it's another sign of the maturity of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very well done. It kind of just like immediately gives you some high stakes at the beginning there. It's like, yeah. oh god, he's going to be wanted now. Exactly. So then that's like the engine for the whole first three episodes, right? Because yeah. that's what he's running from that whole time. It's just this endless escalation because if the Cyril character hadn't kind of, t- I don't know, got this like almost religious fervor behind him of, oh, we have to find the guy who did this as opposed to just approaching his job as a job. Um, and then it's his downfall too, isn't it? It's just this like big domino effect. Exactly. We'll get to him. I have a whole separate section for Cyril because I think he's so interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I also love how much texture we get to Cassian's life on Ferrix. You know, so when he goes back there, 
is like just this constant stream of information about what's going on with him. Mm. Like he owes all these different people money. He borrowed the spaceship from someone. He's got this sort of like interesting kind of ambiguous relationship with Bix. He's got this rivalry with Bix's boyfriend. He's got this like loving relationship with his mother. You know, there's all these people tangled up in his life. Yeah, friends with lots of like banter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. Again, I think that's where a lot of the soap opera comparisons come into it in a good way, you know, and I think in a more ambitious way than a lot of soap operas because it's really not holding your hand through any of it. You know, it's just expecting you to pick up on what's yeah. going on with all these different dynamics. And we're talking about like more the British kind of soap where it is a bit more kitchen sink as opposed yeah. to like American soaps. I haven't watched too many American soaps, but they seem to be a bit more like elevated drama, like yeah. heightened Exactly, it's like Coronation Street, not Dynasty. <laughs> I doubt many people listening to this even know what Dynasty is, but yeah, it's not that. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> um, yeah, and it just makes it all feel so like vivid and real, you know, and just seeing like the daily realities of like working class people's lives in Star Wars. Mm. I, I, we've had glimpses of that before, but it's always been much more. Um, done in like a mythic framework kind of you know you see obi-wan kenobi doing like a menial job in his yeah, show for like example. ray's opening montage and stuff yeah but there's just something about the framing where it's never convincing to me you know it doesn't feel like a real thing that people because well, those characters the underlying thing is oh this person is destined for greater things you know yes. like they're not really supposed to be here whereas that is cassian's life and that is his family yeah, like, yeah, with, like, Rey and Obi-Wan, it's sort of like a sham, isn't it? There's never, like, any reality to it. Well, actually, for Rey, there's more of a reality to it. But, well, yeah. there is, but it's like, oh, she's Palpatine's granddaughter. In <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she's the secret Sith princess. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is definitely not going on for Cassian. There may be a twist in his background, but not <laughs> oh. that. <laughs> yeah, please don't be related to Palpatine. I don't want that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so who stood out to you among the players on Ferex, Kirsty? Who did you like out of Cassian's circle? Um, I love Bix. Yep, Bix Big is crush great. On her. And um, I love Marva too, as I said. Uh, but I, the, the character that I really enjoyed, who I actually cannot remember the name of, is his like friend at work, who he's like, I was with you last night, you know? Yeah. What's his name? Oh god, that's a good question. I'm sorry, great. I can't remember, but I okay. know what you mean. He was a good character. Yeah, I just really enjoyed their back and forth, and I thought that dialogue was just like very well done and kind of an example of what we're talking about, where it's like not laid out what they're doing. Yeah, they're saying this in an unsaid way. They're like covering for each other, and then he elaborates on the story, the story that he's got, and it's like that's telling you the depth of their friendship and the trust there. Yeah. I don't know. That was, I thought that was handled very well. No, I agree. Um, and I like that with Bix, you get quite a bit of detail to her life as well. You know, like you see her life with her boyfriend. You realise that she has this connection with Lufen going on, even though it's not made completely clear how much she knows about what Lufen does. Yeah, I was a bit confused about that. I think yeah. I, it took me like a rewatch to be like, oh, she's the one who contacts Same. <laughs> yeah, I did not realise the first time. So... Yeah, like you could argue that like maybe certain things could be a bit clearer, but again, like, I think it is meant to be a bit overwhelming, you know, like a rush of information. So yeah, yeah, I think it's by design. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately where I've settled is that 
you know, she knows Lufen as a dealer of stuff, essentially. So she contacts him when she finds like an interesting item. And maybe she has some suspicion that the stuff she's given them is being used for like a rebel cause or something. But I'm not sure she's fully like in, in the sense that she knows exactly what he does. Okay. Like, what was your read on that? Yeah, I kind of the same way, but I liked that it was so kind of ambiguous. And that's what makes me think that we'll get more of her. Yeah. Because it's like, what, yeah, what's going on with her? I feel like she was way too prominent for them to just, you know, not follow up with her. I think they have to come back to her. Yeah. Man, how do you feel about Tim (laughs) with two M's? (laughs) Tim with two M's. Oh, God, I need to remind myself who that is. No, that's that's her boyfriend. Oh, her boyfriend. Meets the sticky end. (laughs) Yeah, no, so... Again, he would be an easy guy to hate, right? Yeah, because... it's like, fuck him in some ways, but yeah, also like... quite relatable and grounded. Yeah, exactly. Like... So obviously he rats out Cassian um, to the security force, which is a bit of a dick move. But again, like everyone is so motivated in the show. Yeah. So you understand that he has this jealousy, right? It's a jealousy, but yeah. like he also has this like paternalistic, almost like patronizing um, concern for Bix. Yeah, because that's what he says to Cassian when he's on his way out, isn't he? He's like, "I need to stop hearing that she's so strong." You know, like he's like concerned for her, but then rather than respecting her as a person and his equal in their relationship, he goes behind her back. Yeah, exactly. He's kind of like, "Oh, I need to sort out this guy who's a problem for you, basically, yeah. and like wipe him off the table." So I get. I think maybe from his mind, he's kind of feeling like, "Oh, I'm doing her a favor by doing this," but. Obviously, that's just like a rationale for I'm eliminating a rival, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Although I do agree that yeah, he he kind of sees him as like a corrupting force in her life, perhaps. So I yeah. do think that Cassian, you know, he clearly has quite a bad reputation. You know, it seems like everyone knows him, and not necessarily for great reasons. <laughs> you know, there's like lots of debts that are being unpaid, and like things being very Albert but not Square. <laughs> Oh, Albert Square. Don't you think? Like you were, he was like walking around. And it felt like he was on the set of EastEnders. I must say, growing up, we were like very f- firmly in ITV household. Okay, sorry. So I never watched EastEnders. So yeah, I cannot comment. I'm afraid. Okay, well, the fact that they had Trevor from EastEnders in it as well was just like very much adding to that feel for me. Yeah, no, Kirsty and I were talking before we actually started recording, and I was extremely impressed by Kirsty's memory for soap opera actors' faces. It's really quite remarkable. I tell you what, honestly, for that particular, it's Alex Fern, I think. His, it's his voice that like really made me go, "Oh my god, that's Trevor." <laughs> yeah, it's a strong like Scottish, yeah, and it's just the way the way he shouts and like his anger. Um, it was because. It's been like 20 years since I think he was on EastEnders, so it's a long time. And I think he was on Chernobyl, and I think he was in that new Batman movie as well. Yeah. So he's done other things too, obviously. He's got a good career, by the sounds of it. Yeah, he was just so good in in this series, and I just did not expect to see him at all. Yeah. Um, It was really cool. And I've got to use this as an opportunity as well to say that the accents in the show, I just love them so much. There's just so many different accents. And I love that, you know, because I think they've always established with Star Wars that it's like a melting pot, right? I feel like on every planet, you know, people have come from all over. You know, it's 
not usually the case that you have a planet that just has a native population and just that native population which i think makes canary kind of unique because it seems like there is like a very strong indigenous culture there mm. you know without that whole like melting pot aspect and yeah like i think using you know the real range of like actual real world accents particularly british ones since clearly the majority of this cast is from britain and, and that makes sense because it was filmed you know in england um I think that reflects, you know, this like melting pot feel, you know, the fact that all these people come from different places because clearly Star Wars must have a Scotland, Star Wars must have like a North, Star Wars must have a London. Well, it does, it's Coruscant. Um, but yeah, you know what I mean, right? Like, yeah, in terms of what I think that feeds into kind of what they're trying to do with these imperialist, colonialist themes with like the contrast of Canary and Ferrix and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, I think it's all very yeah yeah no so basically there is a lot going on in ferrix um okay and now should we talk about like our best boy cyril khan (laughs) (laughs) sorry that makes it sound like we're about to be like big apologists we're not going to be we are absolutely not okay this is not a kylo situation (laughs) he's horrible but very compelling yeah it's the actor like carl soller is the actor's name and he is just so so good it's a really wonderful performance because he's like a real jobs worth basically (laughs) and he's kind of like insufferable it's very funny yeah yeah like but also kind of like i feel like you could relate to him from one of two different perspectives so if you're someone who takes your work very seriously and always gives like a hundred percent I could see you potentially seeing the sky and if you just focus on that aspect of him without thinking about what he's doing or the fact that he wants to be a really great little fascist, you could feel a little bit of sympathy for him because he's surrounded by people who just don't give uh, a shit. I mean, okay. Sympathy in that like, he's obviously meant to be a young character. Maybe sure. this is his first job that he feels is important. Yes. You know. And he's doing what he considers his best. And he has these like jaded superiors who won't take him seriously. Yeah. And, and so that's what I mean. I do there's a tragedy mean, like, to it. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I wasn't sure where they were going to go with him. But the fact that he was still in episode four and you followed him home and everything. I was like, oh, I think they're going to give him a story. You know? Yeah. So it's like, where the hell are they going with him? And like, is he going to have a bit of a turnaround? Not necessarily in like the classic Star Wars redemption thing, but like, Cassian's trying to find his cause. Cyril thinks that he has his cause and it's very quickly dashed. Um, what's going to be next for him? Yeah. You know? Exactly. And I have lots of thoughts on that that okay. I am excited to share. Okay. <laughs> um, I might have thought about this too much. Um, but yeah, in terms of like where he starts out in this show, I find it interesting that he's surrounded by just like indifference in terms of like how people feel about their work and what they do from all sides i love that so it's not just his peers and like his subordinates it's also his superiors so the people above him who you'd expect you know to be driving everyone to work hard and do their best they're kind of like oh for the love of god will you just lay off yeah we're just here to collect the paycheck man yeah exactly look just look don't attract attention (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah because that's the point where what you said earlier about the guy saying look this guy was horrible it's kind of good that he's dead <laughs> yeah. that's the point that that comes in who which... is that actor i really re- i recognized him from something but he was amazing too oh yeah that, whole... no, that actor he's called rupert van sittot which is a great okay. name <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure he's a meaning game of friends okay so that might be where you recognize him probably 
Yeah, his that whole scene and the way that was written too of them play, playing off each other and how he was just laying out exactly what had happened, like he just knew and telling him to back off. And of course you knew that he wouldn't because he wasn't that kind of character. Yeah. That was just such a good setup. Yeah. And then he just kind of like bows out. He's like, right, I'm off to do something else. Don't, what does he say? Like, don't put your feet up on my desk. Yeah. He's like, oh, he's going to do more than that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And yeah, and I just love like the detail in the dialogue, you know, how he notices the tailoring on his uniform. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, that's like a really interesting like way of telling you without spelling anything out that this guy, I think what he really, really wants from life is to be an Imperial. You know, because if there's anything the Imperials from Star Wars are known for, it's excellent tailoring. So I'm not even joking when I say that I think, you know, the careful tailoring of his uniform, I think that's his way of trying to emulate that, like, Imperial aesthetic and the perfectionism yeah. that's He's represented like a in those uniforms. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's a similar kind of character in terms of mindset. And yeah, I feel like that's probably where they're going to go with him, because... Again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but there's Deirdre, who works for the Imperial Security Force. Well, a similar name. Don't I, I'll check in a minute what the actual name is. Um, she's going to investigate what happened back on Ferrix, essentially. And mm. I'm pretty sure that's going to bring her into contact with him. I got the wrong end of the stick with her because I thought she was a spy. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I just... Uh, the assumption, the way her, like eyes were darting around that scene i was like oh she's a part of the rebellion but then i was like oh no wait i was wrong <laughs> yeah no i feel like she's pretty committed to the cause to be honest might be wrong might no be i think you're right i got the wrong end of the stick as it went sure. on i was like oh no she is actually invested but she's yeah. like super invested and like has conflict with her peers that's what's going on i thought at first she was there to get information yeah no and i understand why you'd think that again it's sort of like the um cost of the like in media res thing isn't it it just throws you in with these people and you don't automatically get what these people are doing sometimes. yeah it's a good thing yeah yeah exactly so it makes it interesting to watch but yeah i feel like she's very much like what cyril would want to be basically in terms of like she has the sort of job that he would dream of having and she like exudes the sort of like professionalism and attention to detail that he's so obsessed with giving in his job you know, so I reckon if they do come into contact, I think it would be really interesting. So I think they're either gonna, you know, become like close collaborators and like work as a pair or whatever, or they're gonna become bitter rivals. Mm. So it's the sort of thing where they're so similar, they're either gonna get along really well or they're gonna end up hating each other. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm very curious to see that. And yeah, obviously, you know, as the episodes go on on Ferrix and as Cyril realises that Cassian's the one they're hunting, he pulls together like this little force of people essentially to go and hunt him. And again, just the dynamics there were so fascinating. He's trying to like exude authority and it's just not working. He goes over like a lead balloon <laughs> and oh, it's just so painful to watch Kirsty. Well, he doesn't have the charisma that you need for that kind of role i guess where it is all bluster you know because the whole exactly. team is in over their heads but they don't have the sense to realize it at that point yeah and i feel like they contrast him don't they with the like other officer yeah he's a bit more like salt of the earth you know and actually knows these men you know who yeah are, they're going on this mission and he's much more effective at like getting them worked up you know getting them enthusiastic yeah he has that anger yeah and yeah. i think it's also shown to Again, it's not spelled out, but I think subtly it's like a class thing. So I get that 
I get the impression that Cyril is very much like middle class, especially, you know, you get that vibe from where his mum lives when he goes back to see her. Whereas, you know, the other officer, he's more like salt of the earth working class. And I feel like the other people who work for the team can maybe relate to that guy more. And and just the fact I'm saying these things, it shows like how great I think the show is because I think it has these, like it's engaging with like questions of class and like privilege and stuff and ways that I don't think any other Star Wars property has. So yeah, it's really mm. interesting. Yeah, that's that other really short scene it's like well it's just before he goes into another like larger scene where he's like trying to find um cassian before he realizes it is cassian um where he's in like the the building where they work and he says something and two subordinates are walking past and they're like are you okay sir and there's just this like distance between him and the other people yeah like he's he's kind of isolated exactly yeah you can tell there's no love lost there basically (laughs) And yeah, so then obviously after it all goes horribly wrong and, you know, lots of people die and Cassian escapes. That stuff is so funny, though. It is so funny. I love it. <laughs> I like seeing bad guys lose. There's there's simple pleasures in this show as well. It's not all super high-minded, right? Yeah. There's like that shared look between him and the Alex Fern character. I can't remember his name. And they, they think that they've won. Oh, uh, God, that's so brilliant. Just like the deranged <laughs> smile and then the speeder comes flying out. Oh, so good. Really and funny. the explosions. Ah, yeah. So satisfying. <laughs> episode three was amazing. Um, yeah, so obviously in episode four, when he comes back, he's all being dressed down, essentially. I think they're just being fired, aren't they? They're losing their jobs. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> he has to go back home to his mum or Coruscant. Well, not just being fired, but that Imperial takes great delight in like telling him, well, thanks to you, this area is now under our control fully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like a really, really total failure, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's very stinging. Just that great visual of him back on Coruscant and taking the elevator down yeah. and is like going down to the lower levels and obviously not to the lowest levels because we've seen the lowest levels of Coruscant Yeah, they before. do have an apartment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's still quite nice to be honest. It looks like a nice home. By Star and Wars standards, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just like a regular like, old lady apartment block, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like his mum greets him with a slap on the face. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and his mum is played by Catherine Hunter who is so good in Macbeth. So I was really, really happy to see yeah, her. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's such a good actress. Um, and yeah, just again, I love it because it's kind of like relatable. You know, I feel like that speaks like a really primal fear that certain people have about like, oh God, what if I mess up my own independent life so much that I'm left with no other choice <laughs> than to go back and move in with my parent? <laughs> so yeah, it's appealing to quite a desperate fear. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that dynamic. Yeah. No, so very, very excited. I'm sure that's to come in the next episode. So, yeah, that'll be good. Oh, boy. Anything else to say about Cyril? Or should we move on? I don't think so. I'm just really looking forward to seeing more from him and where where they go with that character. I think, yeah, that, that actor's doing a great job. Yeah. So I think I love Bix and I love Luthen talking about the original characters in this show here. But I think out of all the new characters they've introduced in this show, Cyril is probably the most compelling for me. Um, and again, not being an apologist, not saying I love I don't, him or anything. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I could pick him out as like the the single. But like, I, I understand where you're coming from. Sure. But I think Lufin is really good too. Oh, I love Lufin too. I, I think, yeah, just the performances are so good. I think 
Carl Soller and Stellan Skarsgård probably give the best performances in the show today. Um, but yeah, we'll talk. How about that? We'll make that a transition, and we can now talk about Lufen. Because mm. yeah, that is a character that has a lot going on. I absolutely loved him getting the bus over and talking to that guy. Oh god, it was so good. <laughs> I loved it so much because I feel like you know, throughout this whole thing, Lufen is performing almost always, right? Yeah, he's just given a different performance depending on his audience. But I feel like in that opening, when he's on the bus, the space bus, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the most real you ever see him so far, you know, in the show today, because he just looks so tired and weary, yeah. you know, and he's like barely trying to engage with this guy, you know, you can tell this is a guy with just wants to be left alone, so yeah. much on his shoulders, and yeah, he just doesn't have the energy to perform at that point, right? And the guy who's talking to him would just like chatter it away and like be really friendly. <laughs> he just felt so real. Um, actually, he's got his like little pork pie hat on. Yeah, it's really cute. <laughs> it was like only fools and horses or something. <laughs> actually reminded me of um, my dad telling me that when he, I think he was like about 20, really young, he went to America and he took the Greyhound bus everywhere because it was the only form of transport he could afford. Yeah. And there were usually these like really eccentric Americans on the Greyhound bus who would just talk at him, you know, regardless of whether he wanted to talk. Yeah. And, you know, often there'd be like salesmen trying to like sell him an idea or tell him about their like business and stuff. And it just had that sort of vibe to it. I know he wasn't trying to sell anything to Lufen. <laughs> He certainly wasn't picking up on his body language. No, he wasn't. Just, you know, <laughs> cheerfully oblivious to the fact that this guy is not there for this. <laughs> so, yeah, I loved it. Really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, a, there's a kind of mystery around Lufin, isn't there? It's like, as you say, performances, but like different shades of it. And with Cassian, obviously he's like making a pitch to him. He's trying to get him to come with him. Yeah. But you do... You can tell that this guy genuinely believes in the cause, or yeah. at least that's what's being presented. I don't know if there could be a twist later on, but... He might just be a really great actor, <laughs> Christy. <laughs> yeah, no, but I do agree. I think, you know, you're meant to come away with the idea that this is a guy who really, really believes in the mission, you know, and what he's trying to do. And he also believes in people, you know, and for whatever reason, he recognises something in Cassian that he wants to bring out, which I think is really great, especially because of how it's built up across that first three episode arc. Um, because yeah, in those first three episodes, especially at the end of episode three, you see that really beautiful cross-cutting between Lufen taking Cassian away from the planet and Marva and her husband taking like Cassa away from his planet when he was a child. Mm. And in both cases, it's because these people, they kind of inexplicably see something in this person that, you know, it gives them like a drive to protect, nurture them because, you know, they just can't leave them where they are, you know, to basically like die and wither away. And yeah, I think that's like really well done, you know, in terms of like the parallel and just in terms of how it like drives it the more yeah like the more epic nature of this thing you know the fact that despite all the bad shit he's done and the dodgy reputation he may have there is potential in Cassian you know and he really does stand to be something great in the end um and we know he is you know because we see what happens to him in Rogue One and yeah I just think it makes it feel really epic yeah it really does I I, 
just kind of want to go and watch that montage again. Yes, <laughs> it's so good. You really have it down. With the music and... Yeah, yeah. and it sets just up great. that optimistic feeling for the rest of the series, despite, you know, as we talked about, it does have this kind of, like, grim, gritty, like, visual element. It looks great. You know, it's a stunning series so far, but that has, like, this... You know, they're ascending into the clouds and there's this, like, light breaking through. It just has this, like, hopeful feel to it. Yeah. The Cassian really is going to find his path. Exactly. It's really beautiful. Um, And I don't have it written down, but there's also plentiful foreshadowing dialogue. Um, I remember some sort of line from Lufin to Cassian about how, you know, eventually you might even give your life or something. And it's like, yeah, that happens. He does give his life. And that's really sad. (laughs) And yeah, I should probably watch Rogue One again. Yeah, I think we're, I think it's a good idea for us to watch it like after the series is over. Yeah, no, I agree because, again, I think the series has done so well that, in a way, it's almost better if you don't have Rogue One as a baseline. If you go into this, you know, where this is the first time you're meeting this person. So I can imagine then it would make where he gets to in Rogue One really satisfying. Yeah. But yeah, obviously with Lufen, he's sort of like a bit of a master of disguise. And one of my favourite moments in episode four is how he has like this little transformation <laughs> sequence. Yeah, that's where great. He has like a hidden room in his ship that has like all his like robes and jewellery and stuff. And he transforms himself from this like rugged guy, you know, who's out doing rebel stuff to this like foppish antique stealer. And oh, I just love it. Yeah, the body language change is so good. Oh, the body language, yeah, it's just wonderful. <laughs> but yeah, explain a bit about your feelings about that character and that whole thing he has going on, Kirsty. Again, I don't know if that was something in the trailers that I missed, but I wasn't really expecting that. I figured he would have to come into contact with Mon Mothma at some point, but I wasn't sure there would be like a, a disguise as such. Um, and the fact that he has this like front as the shop with, you know, we can go to the back room and have a discussion like that's just it was delightful but i didn't necessarily expect it to go there yeah my memory is that the, there are scenes of him with the wig in the trailers okay but you know the way it's used in the trailers i wasn't sure if it was like a flashback right, you know yeah. just depicting a different point in his life so yeah it was a surprise to me as well i didn't realize that would be a disguise yeah i love that because it just shows very quickly you know going into Mon Mothma as a character and where she's at in this series like the risks that she's taking and the extent to which they have to hide you know the business that she's doing there even from the driver and you know that she's really struggling to get them the funds that they need like it's a really low point for what will be the rebellion you know exactly so I just love how they like use Coruscant like in the story because you know, across those first three episodes, all the locations we see, they're either like natural locations, you know, like really beautiful landscapes that, you know, have perhaps been like brutalized by these like colonial forces, you know, and like scarred by that. Or they're like these very like rough and ready working class environments, you know, where they're like either grim and dingy and depressing or they're like really like messy and they're just where people like live their lives and like go to work every day you know and just lead a very mundane existence Mm -hmm. and so you have that as the setting for the first three episodes but then you get to episode four and you suddenly you still have beautiful landscapes because of where Lufen takes Cassian to meet the rebel cell but on Coruscant you have 
this like beautiful exquisite like palace essentially you know it's, it's so gorgeous and privileged yeah but it's ugly and frightening too yeah when you get when you get low enough but i think what's really interesting about the upper level where lufen has that shop is it's kind of like a place where you can suspend all your awareness of the ugliness of the world and all the horrible shit that's going on i guess if you weren't a politician but, but i think it, for me it felt so dangerous and scary because i was like following these characters who you know were really risking their lives and everything yeah yeah to have this conversation no, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think as the viewer, you're meant to very much have that awareness of the danger. Yeah. But I think, you know, the personality that like Lufin assumes, you know, as the antique stealer. The wealth, yeah. Yeah, he's just like, oh, isn't life wonderful? And look yeah. at all these beautiful antiques. And what would you like for your husband? <laughs> yeah, and then you meet Mon Mothma's husband, who is one of those people, right? Who's living this oblivious life of wealth and privilege. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very much like what that performance is pandering to, you know, that mindset. Whereas like, oh, out of sight, out of mind, you know, I really yeah. don't give a shit. <laughs> basically i love the visual of her getting into that i guess it was like the rolls royce of speeders right (laughs) and then the door closes and she's looking out the window and you just get this sense of isolation and the worry that she has that she can't really share with anyone in her life like it was a shock to see her go home and have that conversation with her husband oh god i just i'd never thought about about mon mothma having a romantic partner and then if you do think that she has one, you assume that they're kind of on the same page and he is absolutely not. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is interesting. And I think, doesn't that make the stakes so much higher as well? Because, you know, like you think about a person's home as being like their sanctuary, you know, the place that they can go and they can relax and they can be themselves. But because of who her husband is, it's possibly the most dangerous place you can be. Because, yeah, oh, it's chilling. You haven't watched The Americans, have you? Um, I've only watched a few episodes, but I know what okay. the premise is. Yeah, it just... I i know we'd heard early on that the, the people behind that show were div- like involved in this to an extent, and I'm not sure if that stayed the same or how much work they did, but just that scene kind of made me wonder who had been involved in the writing of that. Yeah. Because there was this real conflict there that was like simmering under the surface. Yeah. And I'm so happy for Genevieve O'Reilly, who plays Mon Mothma. You know, isn't that incredible that she played like a basically a bit part you know as that character in revenge of the sith almost all her talking scenes were cut and then she came back for rogue one but again it was a very small part mostly exposition and now she's come back and she's finally after like 15 years got an actual character with substance and dimension like a personal life you know yeah there's a personal sense there like we as viewers i mean i'm sure there are people out there who are like into mon mothma but yeah. I, I never was, you know, beyond like, oh, she looks cool. I wonder what they call themselves. <laughs> like, what would you be if you were like a big fan of Mon Mothma? Would you be like a Mothmite or something? <laughs> I want to start that. I want to be a Mothmite. <laughs> but yeah, like I was like, oh my God, this is the stuff that gets me into this character. Yeah. Like the dysfunctional marriage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and an one thing you might not jacker. know, Kirsty is that in interviews, they've said she also has a daughter. Oh. Which is very okay. interesting. So obviously there's no trace of a child. And Oh, no. Again, another thing they say in the 
interviews is that she went into this arranged marriage because it was arranged. Oh. Um, oh, sorry. I'm just like giving all the truth bombs right now. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not like surprised because they obviously, there's, they're not in love or happy. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's the only way. But it I wondered sense. how it had got that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So apparently it was a arranged marriage, and it was when she was sixteen, so really right. young. So I guess the daughter could probably be like a young adult at this point, because I think Mon is meant to be like in her late thirties. Okay. Um. So yeah, I presume that's probably a character we'll see because Tony Gilroy's been mentioning her. Um, but yeah, that makes me even more excited, you know, because what on earth would the daughter of these two people be like? Oh boy. You know, which parent would she take after, like, if either of them? So I'd imagine that would be heartbreaking, you know, if, you know, that you're the mother of, like, a child who took after their father when the father was like that. Oh, it'd yeah. be horrible. Like, they're growing up in this position of huge economic and social privilege, and yeah. you're doing your best to steer them in a way that, yeah, oh god. Exactly. And like the only safe way to be on the surface is to be living like, if you're very privileged, is to be living like a delightfully oblivious life, you know, where you just do not care what the empire is doing and you just like enjoy the riches that your station has brought you, right? You know, if you're shown to be like concerned about what the empire is doing or in any way opposing it, you have a target on your back, you know, which is why Mon is in fear this whole time. You gotta be besties with Slymore. <laughs> Honestly, like it might just be an Easter egg. It might just be a name drop. We might not see Slymore. But oh my god, I really hope <laughs> that see was just Slymore. so funny. The visual of her at a dinner party. <laughs> Does she eat? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. It's just it's too funny. It's like again, maybe I'm misremembering something. But my sole memory of her from the prequels is just her sitting next to Palpatine in the box completely expressionless yeah. every time. But maybe she's got a terrific sense of humour. Yeah, yeah, well, according to the husband, she's a riot, you know. So yeah. She must have some sort of party trick or something. That... No, he's awful too, so they're probably just being gross together. Yeah, they're probably just being like, oh god, we just took over another system. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> oh. like you can be down here with the boring people. I must say, I do really want to see the exciting side of the um, table as well. I want to see what Slymore is like at a party. <laughs> oh my god, it, yeah. It's just so wonderful. And again, just like the level of danger that represents, right? Because Slymore is like the right-hand girl of Palpatine. Mm. <laughs> Probably not used to being called that, but yeah. She basically is, right? She's the person who's always by his side. Yeah. And again, if my knowledge of what Palpatine is like at this point in the timeline he's very reclusive you know he's not often appearing in public right. so people like Slymore would essentially be Palpatine's like ambassadors in public you know so it's as close as you can be to actually having Palpatine at your dinner party <laughs> imagine <laughs> so yeah oh man god if Ian McDermott showed up at the dinner party it, it wouldn't happen but oh god it would be so good I think there's supposed to be some kind of Easter egg or like a reference to later on in Rebels there. I don't know if you'd seen it floating around on Twitter, but when they're having that conversation about, I don't, is it about Slymore and like what she supports? And then um, in Rebels, there's 
like Mon Mothma, I suppose, well, I can't remember it, but I saw someone pointing it out that she like resigns from the Senate in protest to what happens on this planet that she's trying to save. Oh yeah, no, I think it's something about people would be starving because like roots yeah. being blocked or something. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, and like asking, oh, would you be chatting about that with your fun dinner party guests? Especially. Yeah, so that's the kind yeah. of thing that I'm talking about where it does feel, you know, that they're, they're giving a nod to the things that people will have seen and been fans of before. But if you haven't seen Rebels, or even if you have like me and have no memory of that particular episode, <laughs> yes. it works fine, you know? Yeah. You get the stakes of the conversation, but it's like, oh, whatever, I didn't get the name of the planet or whatever, but that's not really what's important. Yeah. So that is kind of how an Easter egg should be, you know? Exactly. So it's all about, yeah, the the most important thing is that you know she's disgusted by the fact these people are completely indifferent to the suffering of people elsewhere in the galaxy. You know, by the fact that they're just happily content in their bubble. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and he doesn't have the respect to, like, keep her informed of things that happen before they happen. Yeah, exactly. So, like, oh, I put it in your calendar. <laughs> Which made me think, wow, they have Google Calendar in Galaxy Far, Far Away. Interesting. <laughs> It's obviously not quite that level, but um, I, mean, I just yeah. didn't even expect Mon Mothma to be married, so that was just like, oh, we're getting her home life. That's yeah. just not something that would have occurred to me. Exactly. And they also had a bunch of servants, which again is not surprising, but yeah, like just you're you're not actively thinking about it, I guess. You know, it's like, wow, they've got a lot of servants in the house. I guess maybe I would have expected them to have droids or something, but mm. yeah, maybe Mon Mothma's in keen to have people because she wants to support them. Should be very nice. Oh, we didn't talk about Cassian's droid. Oh god, the droid is so good. <laughs> he was so good. Yeah, so was it two different droids? Was there one with Marva and one with Cassian, or was it the same droid? Oh, I thought it was the same one. Oh, it's the same droid, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you're right. Sorry, there's just a lot going on in my brain. There's a lot to talk about. Honestly, <laughs> I feel like I was at a point where I thought I had droid fatigue and I was like, they can't possibly design another character that's a droid that would like get to me, you know? Yeah. Uh I felt like I'd had my fill of like BB-8 and everything. And then I was like, oh my God, I love this droid. No, it's just so sassy <laughs> so good. and fun. Yeah. yeah and and like, it's really cute that he's like, well, if you want me to lie twice, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to charge at home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then like, you can hear, you know, I just, it's such a different kind of droid, isn't it? When they have that human voice, obviously the original context there is the contrast between R2 and 3PO, but there's just like a different presence to that kind of element and that he can like play the messages that Cassian's sending him and obviously gives him up because of that yeah I don't know it's all handled very well and and great design as well yeah no exactly and I just love you know it feels like a droid that working class people would have you know like just like how clunky it is he's a bit battered around isn't he yeah. yeah exactly a bit battered and stuff and yeah you know I think what a lot of people love about the first Star Wars is have lived in the whole world feels and I think everything in this show so far feels super lived in you know you buy the reality of it which I think is hard to do with any science fiction show and especially when it's from like Star Wars where there's so many like Star Wars specific tropes that you're always kind of conscious of the artifice of it because you're always aware that you're watching Star Wars mm. so I think when it can do that and make you really feel like oh yeah no they have a little domestic droid you know who like has all these like cool little functions but it's also a little bit broken down you know just like get absorbed in that that's really Mm -hmm. quite an accomplishment yeah (sighs) okay so almost there (laughs) 
I think there's just like two other storylines to talk about and hopefully these are relatively quick as well because my voice is about to go. <laughs> um, is First of all, there's the Imper- Imperial Security Bureau on Coruscant. So yeah, what did you think about what's going on here in this pristine palace of Imperial evil doing, Kirsty? Well, I told you earlier, I got the wrong end of the stick quite quickly. <laughs> so then <laughs> yes. I was like catching up and I've, I've only had a chance to watch the fourth episode one time. Sure. So I do plan on going back to it again before this Wednesday coming. Um, but oh, what was the name of the older guy who was like leading that meeting? He was great. Like the new Tarkin. Oh, yep. Yeah, he played. Um, so that was Anton Lesser, who is another Game of Thrones actor. Yeah, I recognized him. Yeah. And he was playing Major Partagus. Very scary. Yeah. He <laughs> no was nonsense. so intimidating. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Yeah. It just makes you realize, wow, there are all of these people who really are taking this empire super seriously. Is re- I know that sounds silly because obviously you do have characters like Tarkin right from the beginning, but it just kind of reaffirms that it's not just Palpatine. This was like a real top down operation that like shaped the entire galaxy. And there are like so many of these authority figures. Exactly. It's just and- that. It makes yeah, it so much more plausible as well, you know, because how would it work if there wasn't that sort of structure, you know, and all these people who are this committed? Because, yeah, Palpatine's only one man, right? And obviously he's an evil Sith with basically superpowers, but there's still limits to how far that power can go. So, yeah, he needs all these, like, functionaries to be there serving fill in these positions and being hyper competent like these people are basically and are these they all people who worked for the republic and then just when it turned into the empire they were like okay great this is my chance for career greatness like <laughs> yeah i really love chancellor palpatine <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question actually so obviously this is quite far into the empire so we don't we don't get much of a sense of you know what the transition was like i feel like that's something they've covered a bit more in the animated shows Mm. like bad batch goes into some of that i think especially in the early episodes um but yeah in terms of like how quickly the empire could build up this bureaucracy it does raise some eyebrows but it's definitely here at this point and they're doing a good job of fleshing it out yeah, the most plausible explanation is that a lot of these people were in the Republic and then didn't see too much difference in their own standard of living, so just figured it was a good change. Yeah. Oh, things are going to be run more efficiently now. Great. I'm yep. going to get more power. Exactly. Wow, this Palpatine guy is really strong. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, is how a lot of people feel about their politicians. Um, yeah, so they're kind of like ruthlessly efficient, essentially, and ruthlessly horrible to each other as well. It doesn't yeah, seem like very nasty. a healthy workplace environment at all. I'll tell you what I, my main thought was in terms of how it makes a great contrast with where Cyril works. Um, so the Primor security inspection team is so like lax and unmotivated and no one cares. And like the Imperial Security Bureau is the complete opposite of that right yeah so like everyone cares and they care way too much it just seems like they were waiting for a slip up so they could justify taking over and like being more productive yeah exactly you can tell they just don't tolerate that sort of like inefficiency essentially and yeah i felt like the imperial security bureau is just like an organization of cyrils (laughs) you know they've (laughs) all got that same like hyper self-conscious like want to do want to be absolutely perfect in every single way mindset 
And that's kind of terrifying because one Cyril is terrifying and everyone <laughs> hates him. But what if you have a whole organization where everyone is like that? It's, yeah, yeah. scary. I stuff. thought you were going to say like one Cyril is kind of funny in a sad way, but then like if there's all of them, that's quickly very threatening. Yeah, that's yeah, that's probably more correct, to be honest. Because Cyril is funny by himself. But as you say, if he teams up with this other character, what the hell are they going to do? Yeah, probably some really horrible stuff. Yeah, and there really is this interesting like assumption of, oh, if you're trying to do your job well, it's because you're trying to stab me in the back and take my role. Yeah. You know, it's like very competitive cutthroat. Just didn't expect to see that sense of competition because it should be like, oh, well, we're all working for the same cause. We really believe in the empire, but there's this <laughs> selfishness and ambition that's driving a lot of it. Exactly, yeah. You can tell they wouldn't think twice about backstabbing the other person to get ahead, which, yeah raises questions about the long-term viability of this organization yeah well that kind of reminded me of a lot of the stuff from those aftermath books with like ray sloan and and rax yes yeah that they just care more about like their own personal achievements and legacy yeah no it's interesting it means there's real like texture to what's going on with the bad guys but not in like the way of like being like Oh, look at them. Aren't they sympathetic? These people aren't sympathetic. They're human in a sad way. They're human in a sad way. And it just gives their motives more complexity. So I think the most boring types of villains are like, we're evil and we're all happy being evil and we're all happy being evil together. You know, (laughs) whereas these people, they're all working for the same evil cause, but each of them has their own reasons for doing it. And the person they're most interested in safeguarding is themselves. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting. And obviously, we've only been introduced to the Imperial Security Bureau in episode four. So I feel like out of a lot of the facets we've talked about so far, we don't yet have much of a feel for them. But I'm excited to see where they go over the next few episodes because, yeah, we're clearly going to get more of these characters. Yeah. Cool. And then last but not least, and we'll only talk about this quickly, since it's (laughs) obviously going to be heavily expanded on in episodes five and six. But the main development for Cassian in episode four is that Lufin essentially drops him off on a planet called Aldhani and is basically like, look, do you want to earn some money and serve a good cause? Join up with these rebel people and help them steal the Imperial payroll for the quarter. And Zoe's like, that's a bit crazy, but yeah, what choice do I have? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you're just going to leave me here, so. (laughs) Exactly. So he goes off with them. And essentially the whole point, I think, of this storyline is just show how deeply dysfunctional the dynamics are between this whole team. Yeah. And the fact that at this point, the rebellion, it barely exists. And what does exist is so fractured that it's a miracle they can do anything at all because these people are just not working well together. So I found that interesting that that's our introduction to a rebel cell. The fact that they're all so dysfunctional and no one trusts each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it it makes sense because even by the time you get to Rogue One, you obviously have Mon Mothma as that leader. But, you know, there's the tension and disagreement with someone like Saw Gerrera. So earlier on at this point, there would be even more of that, right? That you have all these people who are not content to live under and be oppressed by the Empire, but they're all coming at it from different places, from different experiences and um, positions of privilege and lack thereof. So, yeah, it feels 
very realistic. Exactly. Yeah. And I also think, again, it makes an interesting parallel to the team that we get in Rogue One. Because, Mm. again, I feel like one of my issues with Rogue One, and it's been a while since I watched it, so apologies if this is wrong, is I felt like the team got together a bit too quickly and easily. You know, the fact that these people who are all new to each other, it just felt a little too convenient. You know, the fact that they were all so close and tightly bonded with very little interaction. Or at least that's what it felt like to me. Because I feel like this is much more realistic. You know, I feel like this is how real people would behave in such a high stakes situation. When there's so much at risk, you know, they would be inherently suspicious of someone who's been newly introduced, you know, and it would cause problems. Yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of that with Cassian and Jin as, you know, they develop their relationship. But with someone, I always think of like Bays calling Jin little sister. I'm yeah. like, oh, that does not feel earned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I agree. So, or maybe also the reality of like having to get through that kind of story in the confines of a movie. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, again, I think that's one of the great strengths that Andor has versus Rogue One. You know, so there's only so much ground you can cover in a movie whereas I think this show is so good at just slowing down and giving you like a lot of texture and detail to the world and the characters so yeah it feels like real tv not just Star Wars tv which <laughs> I really love it's great this part was really beautiful like where they were filming and, oh yeah um, and also just loved that initial conversation between Luthan and I can't remember the name of the character you know that female character oh, who Val I think yeah, yeah. And, you know, she's like, oh, I guess I'm just going to have to pretend to them that this was the plan all along. And, yeah. you know, she needs to reassert herself as the leader of that um, cell and not be, like, undermined by Lufin telling him this is how it's going to go. So yep. she has to, like, pretend that she's happy that Cassian's <laughs> there and everything. Yeah, exactly. And there's just so many, like, levels of, like, I feel like deceit's almost the wrong word because... But yeah, I guess it is a kind of deceit, isn't it? She's yes, political posturing, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, it's just really... It makes it feel so much more understandable in terms of where did the rebellion come from? Mm. Because it's clearly such early days. And it makes me really excited for where the series is going to go. Because I know they've said it's going to go right up to Rogue One. And there's clearly so much work left to do for it to actually become a functional organisation you know, that's actively going to pose a real threat to the Empire. So, yeah, I really, really like this star. I think it gives so much room for growth and development, not just with the individual characters, but also with these, like, greater forces that are involved. Yeah. I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with that plotline next episode, because this felt like a lot of setup, And as you say, like, establishing those kind of tensions between... Well, Cassian's calling himself Clem and like you know who, who the hell is this guy he just shows up at the last second Yeah, like they're all clearly nervous about this operation as it is so that adds an element of risk to them and hopefully we see how that goes next episode yeah no I'm very keen for it I will say it's a bit weird how you don't see that many alien characters yes like there's one who's like the guy who's there for muscle when that guy's trying to get his money back from Cassian and that plays really well. That's yeah, really funny. That is funny. But I can't really think of anyone else. Can you? Yeah, there is like a background character. I think, oh God, I can't even remember what the context is, but there's definitely other characters on 
Ferrex, who are aliens, but again, they're like bit parts, you know, mm. no like significant characters. I, my suspicion with regards to that is that it's probably because Tony Gilroy, he clearly loves actors and really wants actors to give their all. And obviously when, you know, it's an actor playing an alien, they're really inhibited a lot of the time because, you know, they're in a monster mask or their own prosthetics or something. But even like background alien creatures, like you get mm. the sheep with the four horns, but I think those are actually <laughs> real sheep. So. <laughs> sure, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, the, um, yeah. No the, porgs. Not necessarily sentient, are they? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. There are background aliens, but yeah, they're vastly outnumbered by humans, for sure. And I know that's a big problem for some people. If you're following, like, Imperial, uh, it makes sense, like, they're not going to have Imperial aliens. Yeah, there's right. a lot of history to that, yeah. Yeah. Shout out to my fraun-loving friends. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so one question for you, Kirsty, um, before we finish, because I want... It's, we're not going to place bets, obviously, but I just want to hear what you think will happen. Do you reckon this rebel cell that Cassian has teamed up with, do you reckon they'll pull off the mission? I'm wondering if the there's a if there's a traitor in their midst. Ooh, I like that. I, I have no idea. But I think I could see it happening going that way. And then Cassian realises what he's really getting himself into. Right. Yeah. No, that would be a really interesting development. Yes. But I think my main thought was that just that I don't think the mission will pull off. No. You know, I think they're going to fail um, because I think, you know, there needs to be like a big failure or setback early on for like Cassian to really be like, what the hell is this? I'm not doing this. And then something else happens to pull him back in, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like that idea, you know, if maybe it could fail because there's a traitor, it would turn it into like a proper like, and suspicious, but... And then maybe maybe people think it's him. Ooh, yeah, that would be really juicy. God, there's just so much like potential for great drama in this. Yeah. I love it. But I trust that like, I, I am not even like bothered about what my predictions are i just kind of want to see the story that they're telling because i'm so impressed with what we've got so far yeah that i'm like they've got better ideas than i have exactly so. yeah yeah i have confidence in them to tell an interesting story so yeah it's a really nice feeling to be like i wasn't invested but now i am and it's because i just want to see what they're doing with this like you know as i said i always thought diego luna's performance in rogue one was good but I wasn't like, oh my god, I love Cassian, you know? Yeah. So it is just like, we're along for the ride. And I, I love him now, but it's because of what they've achieved with the show already. Yep. So. Exactly. So yeah, really, really great stuff all around. So I think everyone who's worked on this show can be very proud. So I think it's turning out really, really great. Okay, but yeah, we've been going for a while. So to keep this show kind of manageable, we'll close off here. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!